Just a reminder on the announcements. First of all, prep school promotion will be next Sunday, August the 18th. That will be this coming Sunday. Then the next weekend is a full weekend, uh, men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning the 24th. And we'll have a special speaker, Rick Miller, also that Sunday night. Uh, Yoram Edinger will be here uh, from Israel, and he will be speaking then. I also had Connie send out a, um, uh, a flyer. There's going to be a Gulf Meadows church, which is down by the airport, and that church is very supportive of Israel, Israel community, and they have a number of events, and they are having a, hosting a, an IAF captain, which is really Air Force captain, who will be speaking this coming Saturday night at 6.30. So if you want to know more information about that, uh, that did go out in an email. I'm going to go over there. I tried to get him here, but because of his schedule, I wasn't able to do that. Uh, but he, he should be... Uh, uh, interesting, the um, FIDF is an organization called the Friends of the Israeli Defense Force, and it's an American organization that uh, uh, raises a lot of support for uh, Israel, for a lot of different uh, needs that soldiers have there that goes beyond what the government pays for because a lot of soldiers there come out of, they have a poverty, those impoverished in Israel just as we do here, and so they, it's very difficult for them under mandatory service to take care of a lot of their additional needs. So that's a helpful thing, and it's very interesting to find out, listen to these guys, what's going on, and you get sort of a troop-level um, uh, description of what's, uh, what's going on in Israel. So that's going to be this, this, uh, this Sunday as well, I mean this Saturday night at Gulf, Gulf Meadows Church. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, time for when we can confess sin to God. Uh, in the privacy of our priesthood, it God promises that we will be instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. We're restored to fellowship where God the Holy Spirit is activated in uh, the maturing process for each believer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will pray. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to come together to study your word. So many times in the history of Christianity, believers have not been able to do this because of fear of persecution. They haven't been able to do it because they haven't possessed their own copy of your word. And what a privilege it is for us to have copies of your word, to have the uh, comfortable surroundings to study in, and to learn and reflect upon what you have to teach us. Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly. We pray for our nation that you might strengthen the leaders in this nation who seek righteousness and do right, and that you might restrain those who seek evil and by calling it good. And we pray that you would uh, restrain their actions. Father, we pray that this country might be restored to a position where people value that which has eternal significance and no longer just pursue the emptiness of their own personal pleasure and personal uh, security. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts. Acts 17, as I pointed out, this is one of the most significant chapters in the Scripture for understanding uh, some things about personal evangelism as we draw these implications from the Apostle Paul. Now, we've taken some time, the last three uh, sessions to go over some b- good background information to really understand the dynamics of what Paul is doing here. It's really easy to read through this and go, yeah, 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 I've read this before. This is, this is the gospel and not take the time to slow down and understand the moves that are being made here. Uh, first, I want to remind you of three points I've, I've emphasized in the past that we learned from this is first of all, know your audience. 
We have to know our audience. Not every audience is the same. Not every person that we witness to is the same. They come from different backgrounds. They come from uh, different levels of exposure to Christianity. They come from different education backgrounds. Now, the truth is the truth. And the gospel itself doesn't change. It didn't change for Paul. It doesn't change for us. But every time Paul speaks to a different audience, whether it was in Antioch, um, uh, Pisidian Antioch, or whether it is in um, Lystra, or whether it's here, he tailors the message to his audience. You have to know your audience. And so you you can craft your message so that it communicates to the best of our ability to the audience that we're we're addressing. Second, don't necessarily be in a hurry. Too many people are. One reason is we're nervous. We're scared to death. We're gonna they're gonna ask us a question. We don't know the answer. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Oh good, I did it. You know, a lot of people are like that. And that's just a sign of immaturity and inexperience. Or we just think that's all we need to do. As long as they hear the right words and say the right words, they're okay. But we have to make sure that they're hearing what we're saying. What do we mean by God? What do they hear when we use the term God? What What is part of their, their um, mental uh, baggage associated with the name of Jesus? I mean, there's all kinds of strange things that, that people have been told and when we say certain things, it doesn't necessarily communicate to them because they've heard other things. They've heard just the opposite, and they're just like, well, wait a minute. That's not what the way I understood it. That's not how I heard it before. Explain this to me a little bit so that I can understand it. And so it involves a, a conversation. And then third, I pointed out, don't use a formula presentation of the gospel. Now, you can have a basic outline that you follow, but it's adaptable to different people in different circumstances, different situation. So here in Athens, Paul is going to challenge these Athenians who pride themselves on be the, being the intellectual elite. If anybody knows anything, the Athenians know it, but Paul has the courage and the audacity to tell them they're ignorant. And that is because they've been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So he will challenge them with the gospel in verses 23 to 31. He's on his second missionary journey. He's already crossed over uh, the Aegean into Europe. He arrived first at uh, uh, Neapolis, the port, went to Philippi. Then he traveled through Apollonia and Amphipolis to Thessalonica, went from there to uh, uh, Berea and then from there to Athens. He's undergone a lot of persecution in each of these locations, in Philippi, in uh, Thessalonica, and he's in, in Berea, and the, there's a group of Jews that are hostile to him because he's challenging the foundation of what will later become rabbinic uh, Judaism. It's just in its formative stages during the later part of the Second Temple period. I've given you this. Uh, basic uh, outline of his message, his introduction, which we spent a lot of time just giving background information, going through things the last few weeks in 16 to 21. And <clears throat> in 22 to 31, we see his basic outline. He gives an introduction and uh, touching off on the common ground of their true knowledge of God. Even though they're denying it, he he understands the reality of what he writes in Romans 1, 18 uh, to 23. He knows that. He knows they know God exists, and so he uses that as his point of common ground. He then goes into a description of God to make sure they know who he he's talking about. They understand that when he says God... In G-O-D, he's not talking about one of these other gods or goddesses that they worship in terms of their pantheon. So he goes into quite detail there. Notice this goes from verse, verse 24 down to 29. So we have six verses there focusing on God, and then the challenge in 30 to 31, and then the response in 32 to 34. So he stands in the midst of the Areopagus and says, 
men of Athens, and here he's addressing the intellectual elite, a council of, uh, called the Council of Areopagus. At the end of the story, we're introduced to one convert who's called Dionysius the Areopagite. And that's one of those on the council. So he has converts here. It's just not a huge response. He says, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Uh, I pointed out this word in the past. It means religious, superstitious. It has a, a subtext there that all of all the religions that aren't based on the truth of God's word are basically from the devil. And that's in that root word, daimon. It, that's not the lexical value of the term, but it's it's related term, and so there's sort of a double entendre there. And he addresses them, and he says, I was passing through, considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Hint, you're just covering your bases, aren't you? Uh, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, he's in this location. Uh, this is a diagram out of the, the, the new Logos software is doing a lot of great graphic material for teaching different things. This is a, a tremendous depiction and fairly accurate depiction of the Areopagus of Mars Hill. And you can see the uh, stairs that are here, and those stairs are still there today, slippery as anything over 2,000 years of or probably longer people walking up and down those stairs. They are just really, really slick. And uh, some things, some people put Paul down here. Others, if you go, you'll see an aerial shot. In fact, here it is. You can walk up the back side of it. So the idea that everybody had to go up this way, which is steep and difficult, is uh, I'm not sure that that's how they got up there in the ancient world, but they met up on top. And this is a good uh, aerial shot of the Areopagus. And then this is a, a modern Paul. That, for those of you who don't know, that's Tommy Ice. Uh, we were there together about 10 years ago. Uh, and he was uh, speaking, giving a Bible study on uh, Acts 17. Now, Paul is there to talk to them about God. He wants to make sure that they don't envelop what he says about God into their conceptions, their preconceptions of God in terms of their thinking. Now, they have typical pagan thought. Typical pagan thought uh, at that time and all the way up through the present is based on an idea that everything in the universe is just part of the same base of source of being, that God isn't different. He's not totally other. He is... And even when they use that terminology, when you really analyze what they're saying, God is always part of the cosmos. He's always part of the system. And this was a doctrine of the great uh, chain of being that um, uh, that was part of, uh, really first systematized by Aristotle, although it had been there for many years. Tra- I've traced it back in the last uh, last class through to show how this fits within a lot of the early mythology, Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek mythology, where beingness is found in its fullest form in God, but all other being is derivative of God so that everything within the universe is part of the same being. God's at the top going all the way down to non-being. So the point is that when you understand the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics, they have their, their God is in this chain of being. He's not separate from it. So the unknown God is just another one of their gods that participate in the being of the universe. He's not a distinct God. So Paul's not compromising the gospel by saying, see, your God and not my God, they're, they're really the same God. They're not the same God. What he's doing is he's pointing out that their, the fact that they have a, 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 an idol to the unknown God shows that they've got God consciousness. They're aware that there is a God out there. Now, they're, they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness, but what Paul wants to do is, is tweak it. He wants to say some things that's going to either create a reaction 
on their part, if they're really into truth suppression, they're, they're just going to react to what he says as wrong, foolish, um, wrong-headed. But there are going to be some who are going to re- respond because even though, like Paul had been a truth, they're, they're truth suppressors, just like Paul had been a truth suppressor, there, there's also something going on there where they've got some positive volition. So I created this diagram here showing that on the left side, the distinction in, in Judeo-Christian thought between a personal infinite God who is completely separate from a finite universe. And in uh, Christian Judeo-Christian thought, biblical thought, God is totally separate. There's no derivative being. He creates everything all being, all existence is created by him out of nothing, ex nihilo creation. Uh, angels, man, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy. And there's a distinction between, of course, man and the rest of creation. Angels and man, there's another distinction. Angels are sentient or intelligent beings. Man is, crea- is the only creature created in the image of God to reflect God. And all of the other parts of creation are distinct from either angels or, or humanity. Also had this chart, again, just trying to uh, illustrate for us so we can understand this concept that the, the triangle itself is beingness or just raw existence and everything from God down to just the rocks that are out in the garden, everything is part of the it reflects the same being. So that, that leads to a, what is called monism. All is one. And the idea of pantheism that God exists and he's identical with his, with his creation. So that's the, quick summary of what I've gone over, and just a couple of things that we've learned as we study what Paul says to the Athenians. First of all, he recognizes that the God, little g, that they envision is just another one of their gods. It's not a distinctly different God. It's not a creator God who creates ex nihilo. The unknown God is just another one of their gods, another one in their chain of being, He's not a creator God, just one of many. They're just covering their bases, just in case we left one out. Just in case he, there's another God that we missed, we don't want to make him mad, so we're just going to cover our bases. He's just another God. He's not the God. So second point we've seen is that Paul doesn't ever validate their concept of deity. He doesn't validate their idea of God by equating their the pagan idea of God with the biblical idea of God. He's not going to assume that when they say, well, yeah, I like God, um, I, I, I want to have God in my life, that what they mean by that is what he means when he's talking about God. So he spends a lot of time clarifying who God is and pointing out that that this idol is, is, isn't representing a true God, but it is evidence that they know that there's a God. He's going to tweak that knowledge of God. And we get that from Romans 1.18, just to remind you, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So those who are negative to God are truth suppressors. Even Paul was a truth suppressor. Everybody's a truth suppressor until suddenly you, you understand the gospel and you believe it. And until you're a... Until you believe in the gospel, there's no indication that you're going to change. It's real easy for us to look at somebody and go, they are so hot. They're never going to accept the gospel. They're never going to trust in Christ. That's what you would have said about Paul five minutes before he became a believer. So we can't prejudge, and we don't know how long it's going to take. We just have to be faithful in expressing the gospel. Now, the wrath of God's revealed against truth suppressors because what may be known about God is manifest in them. It's revealed in them. So that means no matter who I'm talking to, they know in their heart of heart, soul of soul, buried down in the 1,000th level of their, uh, of their cellar, locked away in a steel gun cabinet, wrapped in chains, is the knowledge that God exists. 
And every now and then the chains start rattling, and it scares them to death like a bad horror movie. They hear the chains rattling down in the basement. And see, that's what Paul's doing is he just wants to say some things that are going to get that that knowledge of God that's buried so far down and locked away in that gun cabinet wrapped up in chains to start vibrating a little bit, and then there, he's going to get either a, a positive response or he's going to get a negative reaction, one or the other. And we see both of them happen here uh, on Mars Hill. And then in verse 20, we read that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. No matter what they say, and trust me, they will say this is garbage. They'll say this is a lie, this isn't true, I don't see it. Well, that's because you've been suppressing that truth for the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You don't want to see it. And it's going to, it's going to take a while for God to knock those scales off if you really want to see it. But mostly you don't, so you just keep right on going. And so, But God says his invisible attributes are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, stand before the beam, I mean, the great white throne judgment, there's no excuse. Why? Because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The more darkened they become, the harder it is to pierce that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We just have to do the best we can to, you know, to, to try to generate a little activity. Now, third thing we learned is that Paul also uses certain features of commonly held beliefs as a way of tweaking their God consciousness. He's, he's going to say some things that are commonly believed in terms of sort of the uh, the, the, the religious beliefs of the masses. But he's not using it because he's saying it's true. He's using it because the reason it's there in the culture is because there's truth that's been suppressed, but there's still this knowledge of God that bubbles up everywhere. And these different sayings are just evidence that there's some truth there that's being suppressed. And so Paul is simply uh, using that as a way to surface the God consciousness that's already there. That's point four. The common ground that Paul appeals to isn't reason or experience, but the suppressed truth of the knowledge of God. Now, this is an important point. I could take off for probably the next two months and just teach this point. Typically, in, in the methodology of defending the faith, what we appeal to is one of three things. Most people don't appeal to the Scripture as the ultimate authority because the unbeliever doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture. I'm going to appeal to something he thinks is, is, has authority. I'm going to appeal to reason. But his reason is flawed, and his reason is autonomous, and therefore it's irrational ultimately. And so what you're doing is you're slipping over into the human viewpoint side of the game thinking, I can win them by using their assumptions. No, you can't. If you've got a bad starting point, you're going to get a bad ending point. Now, sometimes that works, but that's only because people aren't real bright and they're not consistent and they're, they're not thinking things through logically. But it's not that the gospel isn't rational, but it's not starting from their rational starting point, uh, uh, that human reason alone can determine truth. Or we go to experience the historical argument to validate Scripture. Now, there's a historical argument of evidence for the truth of Scripture, but that's not our foundation for proving truth. It's different. Where Our starting point is the fact that the unbeliever I'm talking to already knows that God exists. I don't really need to prove it to him. And if I'd tried to prove it to him on his terms, we got a problem. How much empirical evidence can I marshal I say to the unbeliever, to convince you that God exists. And he's going to say, doesn't matter how much evidence you marshal because it won't convince me. Because, see, I already know God exists. And I've been suppressing it for 30 years. And I'm going to keep suppressing it because it's not about evidence. It's about my hostility to God. The issue isn't lack of data 
The issue is rejection of data. It's an ethical, sinful problem. It's not an intellectual problem. He's not an unbeliever because he's not smart enough. He's an unbeliever because he's in rebellion against God. And he doesn't want the truth. So when we witness to unbelievers, we don't sacrifice the true common ground because we think it'll be easier. In sales, they have another term for that. It's called bait and switch. usually doesn't work. Uh, success in fifth point, success in evangelism should be determined by several factors. Now, this is really important. How many years did Noah evangelize his generation? 120 years. How many people responded and believed in the gospel? None. Was he successful? Absolutely. See, we live in a world that says success is measured by some kind of quantifying element. How many people did you lead to the Lord? Well, you haven't been very successful, have you? No, I've been eminently successful. I've never compromised the view of God as the ex nihilo creation of the world. I've never stepped over into rationalism or empiricism to try to prove the Bible is true. I've never sought some authority higher than God, reason or experience, to prove that God exists. I've never compromised the gospel. I've always made it as clear as I could. I've been very successful. See, all we can control is our own decisions and our own actions. We can't control other people's decisions and actions. So success isn't measured in terms of conversions. It's measured in terms of our attitude towards the unbeliever, measured in terms of our humility. We're not going to get caught up in some sort of ego contest. I know more about history, and I know more about science, and I know more about the Bible than you do. Uh, it's not about some debate. It's about a genuine concern for the salvation of the person. It's uh, uh, our concern for having an, a conversation with that person so we understand what they're asking and what they're saying. Sometimes I listen to a lot of talk radio when I'm out in the car, and there's one or two talk radio hosts that really irritate me because they don't ever seem to, are, are many times, they don't listen to the question the person is asking in my opinion. And I've heard some of them just cut somebody off because they think they're an idiot or they're a liberal, and they assume they're saying one thing, and I'm not sure that's what their question was. And I find that pretty offensive, and too often that's what happens with Christians in witnessing situations. We sort of second-guess what their objection is going to be without really listening to what they're saying. We get impatient And it's easy to get impatient sometimes with somebody like the Apostle Paul who's antagonistic all the way up to the point where they say, I get it. And we hear the, we react to their antagonism over and over again. Next thing you know, we let them push us into a fight. And we, we have to, and and that just comes with experience and maturity in, in, in the Word. So this is how we measure success in evangelism. It's measured by how well we present the gospel, not how many times we have a positive response. So Paul goes on in his, in his opening to focus, once he's established this common ground being the knowledge of God that is within all of us, then he goes on to describe who this God is. And notice he doesn't compromise that. He says, he says it's, he's talking about the God who made the world and everything in it, heaven and earth, uh, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands. So you see his starting point with these intellectual philosophers is not passages from the Old Testament talking about the Messiah. His starting point goes back to creation because they've got to get understand God right correctly then they have to understand the problem of sin then we can start talking about the need for salvation we don't just jump into Jesus it's interesting before God sent Jesus he took over 2,000 years to prepare the human race for the gospel he didn't just say oh Adam Eve you sinned Jesus is coming next 
He took 2,000 years to prepare the human race for the coming of the Savior so they would understand what would be going on, at least through the, all of the uh, revelation given to the Jews uh, first. So he makes the point that, that uh, God is the one, first of all, who made the world, that everything in the world, in the cosmos, which could include, conceivably could include, based on just on the word, more than the world. But he said, he makes that clear in the next passage, the next phrase when he says, Lord of heaven and earth, that he's talking about the entire uh, universe. He, first of all, he says, God made the world. Second, he points out, God made everything in the world. In other words, nothing is the product of chance. Nothing is the result of randomness. God showed uh, intelligence and forethought and planning and made everything in the world. Everything doesn't mean there were some things that just kind of happened by chance. God made everything in the world. Third thing he says about God is that he is the Lord. He's the curios. Now, this word curios can mean owner or master or sovereign ruler. And that's the idea here. It's not talking about um, lordship salvation here. He's talking about God as the sovereign ruler over his creation as the creator. We get that from the context because he talk, he's talking about God as the creator, the one who made the world and all things in it. And as a result, he is the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth. He has authority over what he has made. And then his point is that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. So uh, God made the world. God made everything in the world. Third, God is the Lord or the ruler, sovereign ruler over the heavens and the earth. Fourth, God must therefore be beyond the heavens and the earth. If he made everything in the heavens and the earth, he can't be part of the universe system. He's got to be separate from the universe system. That flies right in the face of their chain of being frame of reference. They, he's talking about a God who is over and above all of the natural laws. And remember what his emphasis was on resurrection. So God isn't part of the, the process, which means God can break through the process of natural physical laws and he can raise someone from the dead. So he is beyond uh, the known heavens and the earth and distinct from the universe. Fifth, this is he's getting this from Old Testament truth. He's not getting it from their view of God. And, and then he says that this God does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, he's not submissive to to, to human things. He's not under man's control. Now, this idea that God is not under the control of man or cannot dwell in buildings made by man, it comes out of the Old Testament, specifically comes out of a statement made by Solomon as he prepares to build the temple. In 1 Kings 8.27 Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews realized that the temple as the house of God was just a dwelling place for a finite representation of God, but that God in his omnipresence was greater than the universe filled the universe and more, and he his presence could not be contained in a human building. This is a scene later on, about 400 years later on, during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? See, a house can't contain God. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. Again, the doctrine of creation. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this, 
this one that is on this temple, I will look on, on, I mean, on this individual, I will look on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The focus is not on the grandeur of the temples in that uh, passage because that's not really God's dwelling place. It is on the person who humbles himself before God. This is picked up by Stephen in his sermon just before he was stoned by the Pharisees, uh, Acts 7.47, but uh, Solomon built him a house. This is Stephen talking, referring back to Solomon's uh, construction of the temple. But Solomon built him a house. However, he then quotes Solomon, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? See what what Stephen did in Acts 7? He combined the statement from Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, with the statement of Isaiah, uh, of God in Isaiah 66, to bring those things together, uh, that God is not confined by building places. Now, Paul's emphasis all through this is on God as the ex nihilo creator, the sustainer, the one who is absolutely independent of his creation, who does not need human beings for anything. Now, that idea also showed up in various uh, Greek notions of deity as independent. But it's still incorporated within this chain of being. They're, even though they had certain notions of an independent God, he's not truly independent because he's part of this, this chain of being. And what uh, is also in the background here is that because God is the ruler of the heavens and the earth, he is the one who oversees the distribution of blessings to both the good and the evil. This is what's known as common grace, that God brings rain upon the good and the evil. God brings certain amount of blessings to both those who are, are his and those who have rejected him. And this is seen in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, Jesus said, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For He, that is the Most High, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That means when we give and somebody slaps us in the face, somebody isn't grateful like we think they should be, somebody is rude, then... Uh, too often we say, well, I'm not going to do anything for that person anymore. Well, that's not grace orientation. Grace orientation is we do it because it's the right thing to do, because that's a human being in God's image, and we need to do what we can to take care of them, for even God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil uh, person. Now, in verse 26, Paul goes on to point out that this that God's creation of the human race ties all human beings together. He says in verse 26, He has made from one blood every nation of men. So all human beings are related. We're all made from one blood. First Adam, and then you have the descendants of Adam until the flood came. Then the human race narrows again to the descendants of one man, Noah and his wife. They have three sons, but all the nations of mankind go back to the descendants of those three men, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, this passage is one of the critical key passages in the New Testament for understanding the divine institution of nations. That's not just an Old Testament concept. That is a New Testament reality because these divine institutions are designed for all human beings, whether they're believers or not, whether they're saved or not. And this is important to understand and the whole issue of the divine institution. So what's the definition of the divine institution? This term has been used by Christians, and I've seen it as far back as the time of the Puritans, so it wasn't a term that was coined in recent recent history. It's been used to refer to absolute social structures and we could say moral and ethical structures 
that were established by God and embedded within the social structure, the social makeup of human beings. It's part of, we might say, it's part of making the imago dei work, the image of God. Uh, It's embedded within the social structure of the human race. Thus, these are for the entire human race. They're for believers and unbelievers alike. They're unbreakable realities. They're designed to uh, for the preservation and the protection and the, the prosperity of the human race. And no culture that has knowingly, conscientiously violated these principles has ever survived. And when many cultures... Uh, that ha- that do advance, uh, start failing the prosperity test, one of the things that happens is that they start violating these divine institutions. They think they can remake these social absolutes. And we see that today. We have in the divine institutions, the first one is individual responsibility. We're all accountable for our actions. We're accountable to God. Within each divine institution, there's an authority structure. The first divine institution is individual responsibility. People are responsible for their decisions they make and how they live their life, and they're going to reap the consequences of their good decisions, and they're going to experience the heartache of their bad decisions. And when we interfere with that, uh, by trying to create, for example, a socialist utopia, then what we do is we end up destroying many other things. There are a lot of unintended consequences. Welfare destroys individual initiative and destroys individual responsibility. It's only on the basis of irresponsible, I mean, of a, of a recognition of personal responsibility that people can be motivated to achieve great things. But when they're given everything as sort of a handout, then there's no motivation uh, to develop, to pursue, to build, and to pers- and to have success. Second divine institution is marriage between a man and a woman, and it is wrong. And I will probably be imprisoned for what I'm about to say before my life is over. Uh, because it will be out there on tape forever and ever, but it is dead wrong. It doesn't mean that you're a a horrible person. It doesn't mean that you're uh, worse than anybody else. Uh, You're not any worse than everybody else who are liars and gossip and slanderers and fornicators and adulterers and uh, murderers and people who are uh, angry all the time, abusive, etc. All of those are manifestations of the sin nature. But it's still wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. It is self-destructive, and it will destroy society. And no society has ever succeeded that allowed and legalized, in fact, no society has ever before us in our arrogance in Western civilization legalized homosexual uh, relationships and homosexual marriage. They may have uh, sort of turned a blind eye to it. It may have been tacitly accepted, but it was never formally legalized. The problem is once you start legalizing one set of sins, where are you going to stop? Before long, if you're going to be consistent, you're going to have to legalize everything. And then that leads to just uh, uh, pure anarchy and destruction of a culture. Marriage allows for the preservation and the um, perpetuation of the teaching of God's creation principles from one generation to the next. And that takes place within the third divine institution, which is the family. A third divine institution is a family, mother and father raising children. No, no society has ever achieved any level of greatness or, or lasted very long that was built on matriarchy. It's always uh, the, the, the uh, cultures that have survived and have conquered and have been uh, prosperous have always been based on a marriage where the male was the leader. Once cultures and the Soviet Union did a lot of experimentation with with roles shifting between men and women, and it almost always led to a collapse. There's a book that was written uh, many years ago called Our Dance Has Turned to Death, which had some interesting statistics about this. I've tried, I read it years and years ago, tried to get copies of it. I have my old copy, but I've tried to even find used copies, and apparently they're 
uh, not easy to find. Very few people even uh, have it on a on a website. But uh, I do remember that the writer had a number of examples in there of different kinds of social experiments that were done in the in the Soviet Union, putting women in traditionally male environments, and what happened as a result of that. God made men to be men and women to be women. And there are a lot of things that women can do better than men and men might be able to do better than women, but that's not nece- those are not necessarily in areas where God designed for them to function. There are differences. There are physical differences and there are soul differences. And God has drawn lines as to what men can do and what women should do, and he doesn't want those violated. And one of the areas that's constantly under attack today is the area of keeping women from teaching men. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, makes it very clear that women are not to teach males in the realm of spiritual truth, neither are they to have authority over men. That's two concepts. Teaching women over men is completely prohibited, and having authority over men is completely prohibited. They're not the same thing. Some people say, well, that's teaching with authority. That's garbage. That's playing with the language. And I hear church after church after church where the dominoes fall, and people who just want to be biblical and teach what the church is held to for 1,800 years of solid biblical exegesis are now viewed as Neanderthals and misogynists because you just want to do what the Word of God says. Then later on, God institutes two more divine institutions, government. This is judicial government. It's established by the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, which occurs some 200, 250 years before the Tower of Babel. I know there are some people who combine these as one divine institution, but you can't have one divine institution that's created with a 250-year gap between uh, the institutions. They're two separate things. We can have government without nations. You didn't have nations between Noah and the Tower of Babel. What generates national or tribal uh, divisions is the scattering of the languages. Now all of a sudden everybody has to break up into different uh, different groups because they can't understand each other. That's the fifth division, which are nations. Now the first set, the first three, all occurred before sin. They're designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization. When they're violated, productivity is reversed and civilization turns barbaric and perverse. They're designed to promote growth, whereas... Uh, Divine Institutions 4 and 5 are instituted after the fall, and they're designed to restrain evil. The first three were given before there was ever any sin. So Acts, Acts, um, back up to Acts 17.26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. So God has made... Every nation. That's part of God's distinction is to divide up the nations. Uh, Internationalism is therefore wrong, both based on the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament and this verse. The UN is is a blasphemous act of man shaking his fist in the face of God, as was its predecessor, the League of Nations. And the fact that the UN has a messianic complex is indicated by the fact that it has emblazoned or carved out of the stone over the uh, entryway the passage from Isaiah 2 that they will uh, beat their uh, uh, swords into uh, uh, plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and man will make war no more. That is a description of what will take place in the messianic kingdom. That is not something that can be instituted by man before the Messianic kingdom. And the fact that the UN has Isaiah 2 over their entryway is is a statement that we're going to do what the Messiah is going to do. We are the Messiah. So the promotion and acceptance of the UN is just a blasphemous act against God. 
So the New Testament, Paul affirms, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times when they will rise up and when they will fall, when they will ascend and when they will decline. And all nations, including the United States of America, will have a period of ascension and a period of decline over the course of their history. And I am afraid that we are living in this nation's period of decline. That's always disappointing to people. We may have a resurgence a few times. That happens, and you can study history and see that in various nations. But there's no guarantee that any nation is going to last forever. In fact, after the rapture occurs, every nation is going to support the Antichrist. And that includes the United States of America. All the Christians will be gone. Their influence will have left. And so they will follow evil like everyone else. So God has predetermined the, or has determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. There are boundaries to nations established by God. And when we come along and want to have open borders and, 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 and Lou, I mean, as a result of our internationalism, it's going to lead to absolute national calamity and national collapse. It is economic self-destruction. And the fact that we can't protect and secure our borders is just a sign of the greatest hubris of a nation in history. God has clearly appointed national boundaries, and they need to be kept secure if we're following any kind of biblical thought, living within the Creator's creation according to His rules. But when we suppress that in unrighteousness, then we'll never never see security and prosperity again. Uh, goes on. Paul goes on to say in Acts 17:27 that the reason that God has uh, that God has done this, that he has established these, these borders and established from uh, one, one every nation of mankind, so that they should seek the Lord. God wants people to seek him. He is not hiding. He wants people to see him. This is Romans 1. He has made the knowledge of himself evident within them. He's not hiding it. Who's doing the suppressing in Romans 1, 18 and 19? It's human beings, not God. God is making his presence known, but human beings seek to suppress it. God has uh, done all of these things within creation and supervises and sustains creation. Why? So that people will seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Now, this word for grope is an interesting word. It's the Greek word, slafao. I didn't get this up on the screen. It's spelled P-S-E-L-A-P-H-A-O. I'll give it to you one more time. P-S-E-P-S-E-L-A-P-H-A-O. P-S-E-L-A-F, P-S-E-L-A-F-A-O. P-S-E-L-A-F-A-O. It's used only four times in the New Testament. It's normally translated to touch or to handle something, but it's used here in Acts in a <clears throat> in a metaphorical way to refer to uh, like a blind man groping in the dark, uh, trying to find his way. And so it pictures a spiritually blind person trying to find God. And yet the Scripture says God's right there. You don't have to go very far. You just have to grope a little bit. He's right there, and the knowledge of him is evident within him. So Paul describes these Greeks as all pagans seeking God in their own imperfect way. They all have God consciousness, but they've been suppressing that truth in darkness, so they can't quite get a hold of God. Now, this idea that God is near us or within us is also present in some of the Greek philosophers and some of the uh, Roman philosophers as well. Seneca was one who had similar thoughts. But but Paul isn't quoting this from a particular uh, Greek or Roman philosopher. This was a common idea in the ancient world. And so he is just using this idea as... 
an evidence of their God consciousness that they would recognize and accept that as true, and this is just evidence that they uh, they are aware that that God exists. It's something beyond what they understand with their uh, with their idols. Uh, it's come. It's a concept. It has its roots in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy four seven. For what great nation is there? that has God so near to it. A great nation talked about here is, is uh, Israel being compared to others. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. Psalm 14, 1 and 2, we read, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. That is the fool. There is none who does good. In 14.2, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. God is looking for people who seek him. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. If you seek God, he will reveal himself to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, God says, Am I God near at hand? The answer is implied, yes. My God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? So the picture is that God is one who is seeking and willing to reveal himself to human beings, but they are the ones who are... Uh, suppressing that truth and unrighteousness, they're, they're responsible for their negative decision. In verse 28 we read, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. Now, when Paul says this, people have argued, commentar- uh, commentators have argued about this for, for centuries, uh, the, and some say that this is a quote from uh, Epimenides of Crete around 600 B.C. But this was a common idea in the ancient world that God was was near and around. And again, all Paul is doing is quoting a popular idea, popular conception, to tweak their God consciousness, that this is just evidence that unbelievers are have some sort of awareness of God's uh, God's existence. So he says that we are his offspring, but this is uh, something he's saying only in terms of being created by God. We are only children of God if we accept Christ as Savior. Uh, John, John 1, uh, verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So you don't get to be uh, part of God's family just because you're born into the human race. You only get there through a second birth. In verse 29, Paul brings it to a conclusion and says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we, he's including himself with his audience as, as human beings created in the image of God, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Since we're part of God's offspring, it dishonors not only God, but also um, it also is dishonoring to ourselves if we make an idol of God to worship him. And then he gives uh, his challenge in verses 30 and 31. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. In the Old Testament, God had recognized that there, uh, that he, that there's idolatry, but because of grace, because of his plan, he had allowed this to go on, but now there is fuller revelation. Jesus has come and paid the penalty for sin. And so it won't seem as if Gentiles are getting away with it anymore. This is the same kind of thing Paul said when he was speaking to um, uh, speaking in Lystra. He said, uh, "Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Notice the unity of the human race as creatures in God's image. 
We're men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Notice the emphasis on creation. Who in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their own ways. See, God disregarded them. He allowed them to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, common grace. God always had a witness. Now, he's going to bring this to a conclusion as he challenges them in the last couple of verses. He reads in, we read in verse 31, uh, declaring to all men that everyone should repent, that is to change their mind, to turn to the truth. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in unrighteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice how he just circled right back around and he hit the real sticking point. In their arrogance, they don't want to believe that there's a God outside of the natural laws that they've identified, outside of the chain of being, who can actually raise someone from the dead. They reject that completely. And not only does Paul is Paul challenging them and saying that God is going to uh, judge them, he is... Uh, going, uh, not only that God is going to bring resurrection, but there will be an appointed time for judgment. And that judgment has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John 5, 26 and 27, Jesus says, especially in verse 27, God has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, what's their response? You have three responses. Number one, you have those who mock him, completely reject what he says. Then there's a second group that says, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. Now, they may be somewhat positive. They may want to listen a little more. It's hard to tell whether they're just saying that to be nice and, and they're putting him off or whether they, they are, they've had their curiosity aroused and they want to hear more. But you've got the mocking reaction. Then you've got the polite denial reaction. And then you have the third reaction, verse 34, some men, and there the word has to do with males, some men joined him and believed. So it was probably mostly a male audience, but there was at least one woman there named Damaris and some others who also believed. And the two that are named are Dionysius the Areopagite, so he's one of the elite on the council of the Areopagus, and a woman. So once again, all through Acts, we see Paul, I mean, uh, uh, Luke pointing out uh, women who are also saved. And this would be revolutionary in a Jewish context because uh, in the synagogue at that time, the women were on one side, the men are on the other side, and the women are basically ignored. The only ones that matter are the men. Paul never treats women less than men. He treats them differently because they have a different role but it is not a less significant role. It is not less importance. They are not sort of a second-class Christian because they're a woman. They just have a different role in the plan of God. Just like on a football team, a tight end has a different role than the quarterback. doesn't make him a better football player or a worse football player. It just means he's got different talents, different design, different purpose. So Paul has gone through this... Uh, Explanation of the gospel on Areopagus, he gets a response and a small group is established there and then he's going to leave. So next time we'll go to the next location where Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. Because God gave the, um, that's a good question, because God gave the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So the mandate is given to start the family before the fall. Yes, she can. She could have. It's God gives the same command to to the animals, identical command to the animals to be fruitful and multiply. The fact that He gave the command meant that they could carry it out. 
The reason they don't carry it out is they probably sinned too quickly. So you didn't have enough time. But that's why when God comes along at the fall and he says, now your childbirth is going to be painful. See, she had the ability already, but there was not going to be any pain associated with it. None of the things that biologically are associated uh, with, with uh, uh, the, the woman's childbirth is there. But she was designed to have children in the, before the fall. So the family was there, was designed to be there, even though it didn't come in into place. That's the command uh, that's there. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study these things and to get into your word and to reflect upon how to witness to other people. Uh, Father, make us sensitive to how to communicate the gospel. We know that ultimately... It's not up to us. It's not our job to be the ultimate one to convince. It's not our job to be the ultimate one to convict. Our job is simply to answer questions, explain as to the best of our ability what we can about the truth of your word so that God the Holy Spirit has the tools to make it clear to the person who needs to understand the gospel to be saved. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.